Hello, Tom. Hello, Heron. How are you? Oh, not as energetic as normal. The heat is, is, has gotten to me, I think. Oh. Oh. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Oh, it's right. I don't mind being not energetic. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. Do you have a cool beverage or something to, uh, to oh. refresh you through our conversation? Oh, yeah. And I've got a fan blowing on me, and that, that's nice. You know, it reminds me of uh, when I was in Vietnam. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it's hot and humid there six months out of the year. And uh, you just get real lazy, you know? It, and it's not unpleasant, actually. I mean, I got once you get used to it, um, you know, it's, it, it's just oppressively hot and humid, and you, all you want to do is just sort of lay around. <laughs> and then the rain hits, then oh, the monsoon hits. Oh, yeah, that's, that's, the... oh, that's, yeah that's the time. It, it's hot when it's raining. <laughs> mm. Well, it's hot right after the rain, anyway, and even during it. Yeah, it was crazy. In fact, uh, I'll, I'll never forget the, the, the uh, I've never seen rain like that before. You could look out the front of the barracks, and honestly, you couldn't see more than about 100 yards. There was so much water in the air that beyond about 100 yards, you couldn't see. Mm. No, the wall of water rain is certainly something that's familiar to me in parts of Australia. Oh, really? But yeah, you do need you do need a kind of tropical. In fact, ironically, the the book that I sent you, which should be arriving with you in the next couple of days, oh, uh, concludes with a kind of wall of water um, experience. But that was very much part of being in the in the tropics. Yeah, I'd never. Uh, well, I just hadn't, it hadn't ever occurred to me. <laughs> you know, but... if you'd grown up, that was the thing that struck me when I was in LA when I was fourteen. That there were a series of experiences, like for example, experiencing that kind of rainstorm on a tin roof, for example, which you just wouldn't get in LA. Yeah, um, and I think it's just yeah, it was one of those things where I was um, doing summer school at the time. I was enrolled in creative writing at Ralph Waldo Emerson Junior High. And, um, yeah, the experiences that I'd had, because my uncle built his own house in the Adelaide Hills, and that had um, not a tin roof, but I think probably an early corrugated aluminum roof. Uh, and that, when the rain came down, and it was just a wonderful sound. <laughs> you really, it was a good sound to sleep to, I think. Yeah, yeah. You know, you just said something also that triggered a thought from our last conversation. We were mm-hmm. talking about being pedants, and mm. and I and I was and I realized one really fundamental difference between you and I is that the the family I grew up in was had no interest whatsoever in anything academic or literary or artistic. Mm. You know, they basically watched television. And, uh, you know, reading, none of that stuff, you know. So yeah. I, I sort of marked it up as an achievement on my side to have become a snob. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah. It was an I, accomplishment I for me. So, yeah. you know, uh, and, and I realized, you know, what, you know, and I've often thought, you know, it would have been interesting if I'd been raised in a family that was cultured. Mm. You know, and had had that because I didn't really discover any of this until I was 21, mm. and uh, and I, I was just thinking, you know, what kind of a person I might have become had I been raised in a cultured family. I remember walking with my father. I must have been 
probably six or seven talking to him about these people called engineers. And I said to him, what would happen if I became an engineer? And he said, well, we'd disown you. They're not intellectuals. <laughs> um, and I reflect wow. on that. Yeah. I think he was partially tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. But I reflect on that in terms of the fact that I rebelled as much as I could in my choice of professions. But it was yeah. really quite strange that, um, yeah, I, I think whether you call it intellectual snobbishness or whatever you call it, it goes in a wide variety of different directions. And I don't, I don't know whether it's something to be aspired to or something to run away from screaming, but my impression is to do the latter. Uh, well, that's what I'm saying is, is that's something I think that marks a difference between our upbringings. Mm, mm. You know, is that I, like I said, I came to that out of choice. Well, I guess the decision that I made when I met my wife and, you know, decided to bury her and all these kind of things. And this is my father has a brother who um, is extraordinarily smart. Uh, and but he became a police officer. He the, the grandfather is the relationship here. My father's father and my uncle's father. Uh, and the decision my father made was to become an intellectual, which was against my grandfather's wishes. And the decision my uncle made was to originally join the army and then become a country, well, originally a city police officer, uh, and then involved with a variety of anti-corruption uh, groups, and then become a country police officer, but again in kind of rebellion to my grandfather. And I think the, yeah, the idea that there are actually... A, a series of possible options from these circumstances. Uh, but my my wife, when my uncle and his wife met her, were just so relieved that she wasn't intellectually snobbish or, you know, of this high, high education kind of fraternity. And it's something that I feel very refreshing with my yeah. wife's family and, and her, that she's not part of this nonsense, which actually leads into one of the stories that I wanted to talk about this evening. But if you have more to talk well, about, let's... That, yeah, that, that, this whole thing, I think, is kind of interesting. Um... It's exhausting, Heron. I mean, let's... To, when you see people that are so... And I, I mean, I went to... I have friends... I mean, my linguist friend, for example, the fellow that she married, who I was also good friends with at school, who's absolutely, like, untouchably brilliant... Uh, he, I would just be exhausted, and they, you know, they're both high intellectual types. Yeah. Well, they have to live live in different parts of the U.S. He lives in um, upstate New York, and she lives in Texas because they both need academic. They're, they're academics, so they need to have academic. So they can't even live in the same city. So well, I, think I left academe. I mean, because of I mean all the other. I mean, I see the other side of this. That's why I left mm. academe. Is I, mm. you know, basically, my what I, I came to the understanding that basically the people at the university were really good at explaining why you can't do stuff, mm. and um, I was. I've always been a sort of troublemaker <laughs> and an activist, yes. and yes. that just completely shut me off, and so I left. Uh, mm. Yeah, I, I have no use for that kind of academic bullshit. But again, there's there for me it was a it was a sort of passion for understanding the world. 
Mm. Uh, and like I say, none of the family, none of the people that I grew up with had the slightest even awareness of that as a possibility. Mm. I mean, their lives were constricted to making a living and, uh, and watching television. You know, mm. and so for me, you know, they just want basically their whole thing was to go to school, get a job, make some good money. <laughs> and, um, you know, that just never really spoke to me. So, yeah, yeah. No, I know what you're saying about that academic snobbishness thing. I, I know I'm, I'm perceived, I think in that same vein, but I don't see myself like that at all. No, no, I don't see you like that. Well, no, but I no, but people who, people who don't have that passion to learn or explore the world, people who really think that the world is mostly about surviving and, you know, and buying shit, um, tend to see me as, well, like I say, I've been called an arrogant asshole on more, mm. more than one occasion. Mm. <laughs> but that emphasizes probably that the people that you're dealing with don't have the linguistic capabilities to find... To call me uh, a pedant. Exactly. <laughs> perhaps. Perhaps this is what we're coming to. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, I think I'm through with this. It's just... <laughs> The, uh, well, and one other thing came up, still lingers from last week, and, I, mm -hmm. and, I, and I'm realizing that I still am dealing with a huge inferiority complex that I got in the high school mm. because, you know, I didn't measure up to uh, the standards. Because I didn't wake up till I was 21. So mm. uh, prior to that, I basically measured my life against television. Yes. And I was an, a complete and utter failure yes. <laughs> by that those standards. Yes. And uh, although I've seen through that on many levels, I know that there's a lot. We were talking about, you know, how I might respond to other people that you bring in here for us to talk to. Mm -hmm. and, and I realize that there's a part of me that still has that sort of inferiority shit going on. And even though I... You know, I haven't let it get too much in my way. I know it's still there. Mm. Mm -hmm. I, yes, I think the this actually vends perfectly into my first topic of discussion that I wanted to bring up, which is that I uh, caught up with a person that I'd gone to high school with this week, just past. Ah. And I, aside from going to Australia and actually meeting a group of high school friends in a very organised fashion... I don't actively seek out these kind of people. I mean, they, they discover me through Facebook and I'm not averse to them. Yeah. But it was quite striking. This woman um, in Australia, well, in Canberra, the, the final two years of high school are called college, normally, uh, if you want to choose to go on and do university. And this, and this so, be how old at this age? Uh, since 16, 17, 18, okay. that okay. kind of age. Yeah. So just before yeah. university. Be 11th and 12th grade here. Exactly. Right. No, exactly. Yeah. And in most of Australia, that would be the case as well. So this is how I knew this woman. Uh, she, and this is an interesting discussion with this whole notion of um, whether you're a success or not. The school friends that I uh, have continued uh, to communicate with who are now very financially successful 
all work in the financial services industry. And it's a funny thing because I think, in, in my own thinking, there are, there are two movements that I feel really very passionately about in terms of actually uh, being almost like an activist about it. The first is the fact, and we've discussed this in the past, the fact that the Taliban is winning and that there needs to be a notion of history and an understanding of what the purpose of these total wars are in terms of, firstly, the fact that we're playing into, in theory, the enemy's hand fundamentally, but also that we need an intellectual capacity to actually deal and understand with history in a coherent fashion. So that's the first movement that I think, you know, aside from all the other stuff that I do, I would devote my energy towards. And the second is the notion, and this is this is problematic, and you'll understand why as I describe it, is that the the kind of crimes that are being committed and have been committed in the past decade, well, really dotting back prior to the past decade, but really strongly in the past decade, have all been to do with the financial manipulation uh, that has occurred and also the way in which the financial manipulators have been able to move legality continuously to cover things that have previously been illegal. Yeah. And in my own thinking, I, I'm trying to find a terminology to describe it. Uh, I, the war on, the whole notion of a war on <laughs> yeah, drugs, war terror, on drug, these kind yeah, of things, right, yeah. these kind of things are always problematic, but what they always involve is firstly freezing assets, redefining criminality, and also changing laws to target these particular aspects. Now, I, don't, I can't find the success of a war on so far. But I think <laughs> yeah, yeah. we take the war on methodology and put the war on greed as an idea that these, these people that are manipulating the very fundamentals of, of human existence, be it, yeah. you know, job survival, home ownership, even, you know, maintaining in rented accommodation or these kind of things, there needs to be a new kind of philosophy which actually understands the way in which these financial instruments instruments have been manipulated, but also the kind of background part of this. So I don't even know how I would describe it, but what I've seen through my peers, and these are my peers from a kind of high school age, that are now remarkably successful, although none of them own land, which I find kind of curious, but they're financially successful enough to travel, uh, move around international locations, and just have a, a what appears to be anyway visually, and this is the deceptive nature of Facebook, well, just through the holidays alone that they take and the kind of experiences that they have, they seem to be living high on the hog currently. Yeah. So anyway, this, this woman was part of that group. She came here, she's getting married to a fellow in the UK, she's based in the UK, and she came here because here is equidistant between Australia and the UK or for her mindset. So she wants to have her wedding here. And this is also in contrast to my wife's sister who is planning a wedding here as well. So we met, um, she brought a friend over who was Australian too, but who is now based in New York through the same, um, uh, I wouldn't say Goldman Sachs, but you know, of yeah, that yeah, kind of yeah, financial yeah. firm kind of thing. Yeah. So anyway, we all we got together at this lavish steakhouse in the wind, which is probably one of the highest, you know, whatever you call the casino things in Las Vegas. 
And uh, I, my wife said, well, how much do you think we're going to spend at this meal? I said, but somewhere between $100 and $200. Just for- <laughs> yeah, no. So brace yourself for this. Yeah, well, that anyway. ain't going to even buy the dessert. <laughs> well, we didn't get dessert, thankfully, here. And I'm, I'm wise. I'm, I'm hip to this game, you know. So anyway, we sat down. And the, I've never conveyed so little information about myself in an experience. And I thought... <laughs> This, this woman thinks of me as a relatively close friend because yeah. I've given her some assistance, but I just felt chilled from the whole experience. My wife got along with them fine. Yeah. But there were elements in the uh, the whole experience that made me realize that I choose the people I spend my time with very well. And it also <laughs> it reiterated to this whole notion of what a high school is, which is what you're describing. This sense of, you know, the fact that you're just all placed together. But... Um, the interesting thing, there were two topics that came up through the conversation. I mean, firstly, my wife and I, we lived in the UK for five years. Uh, and the thing that strikes me about the UK is you pay a bit of tax. You don't pay as much tax as you pay in California. But for it, you get free health care, including what I would call free dental. I mean, you basically pay a very small fee. But it's still considered dental in the UK, and it's far cheaper, and I think on a lot of issues considerably better than even the dental that you pay through the roof here for. So anyway, the topic of... um, I also found this... I don't consider... I mean, I have an Australian passport, but I left Australia for really good reasons, and I don't plan on returning to Australia. And when I lived in Australia, I felt like a resident alien. So I don't get the sense of Australia. I've got family in Australia. I care about my family in Australia. I will go back and visit them periodically. But I don't think Australia holds any particularly yeah. strong... Anyway, so they were talking about um, the, the, the two women, how wonderful Australia was and all this kind of stuff. I said, look, of the places that I've lived, I paid the most tax in California and got the least services. That's not actually true. I paid more tax in Australia and got slightly more services, but the Australian tax was just out of control while I was there. A point, in fact, they had just done what they, a peacekeeping mission, in inverted commas, in East Timor, and because they couldn't ch- they couldn't work out how to run that, even though they'd been putting, you know, mountain loads of cash into defence spending, they decided to raise the tax by 1%. So when I left Australia, I was paying about 51% tax, wow. which just struck me as being... I mean, that's that's what you pay in Northern Europe, except you get really good, you know, you get yeah. really good benefits for that money. And I wasn't certainly getting that in Australia. In California, I paid slightly less than that, but I uh, got no benefits for that. <laughs> but in the UK, I thought there was a, I mean, I paid more tax than I'm paying here, quite a considerable amount more, but there's a lot of stealth taxation that goes on in the US as well. I mean, just things that you pay money for, which you wouldn't pay money for outside the US. Yeah. So my feeling is that the out of the places I've lived, the UK is the best place that I've lived. And from this, there are a couple of very basic facts, including the dental. So this woman decided to argue with me about the dental, and it lasted all of a minute because I just said, you know, I, I wasn't really interested in arguing yeah. that. Yeah. But she also raised an issue with regards to the UAE, and this is apparently, although these people never talk about what their particular financial speciality is, But my impression was that she had some part of her dealings were with the um, United Arab Emirates. Now, my mother was a diplomat there two, three years ago for about three, four years. 
and I know quite a bit about the UAE. And she started talking about some aspects of the UAE financial dealings that were just completely wrong. And again, I thought to myself, I can say something or I can just let it fly. And I just let it slide. Uh, And I think that the emotion that I got from it, and she's coming back, she's going to come back twice to organize this wedding. Um, And she kind of invited herself over to our house. And my wife said to me, she's not coming to our house. I said, we can organize a dinner or something away from my house. Don't worry about it. We really feel the house is almost like a sanctum. And I guess my wife got the sense that this woman would be polluting our... uh, Yeah. I I think this notion of being... This is the other thing. Sorry, I'm missing the main point. The notion of being a success. She talked to me about, you know, the experiences she had of me in high school. Now, in high school, I wrote antiviral software for the Australian government. And I, when I was 17, I worked at a physics institution and I made really good money there. I'm incomparable to um, you know, my peers. And I guess the sense of success there means that, you know, I'm supposed to be living high on the hog in, I don't know, San Francisco or something now. And the point that I made to her is that this is just part of some flow thing. And I don't think of by, you know, there was all this kind of dour talk about, why are you in Las Vegas? You know, why aren't you... Actually, Monaco. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I just thought the whole thing was just a bit perverse. And I yeah. initially, it just irritated me. And then I thought, the life that I have is... I mean, I'm, I'm listeners, I'm talking to Heron Stone currently, the one, the only Heron Stone. How could my life be any better than it is currently? I mean, this whole notion of this... And I think the sense that I get from this experience is that you just... And this came at the end of the SRI talk, and it's something that you've talked about as well, this whole notion of what ifs, if only these things had happened, if only those things had happened, you know, if only I had money in these circumstances. I just can't live like that. I can't live with that mentality. It's just too much toxic baggage that I just don't want to have. It's enough for me if I can just get through the rest of this day. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I think... Well, I've accomplished another one. (laughs) Yes, yes. So anyway, that was was an interesting high school. And funnily enough, and my wife, even less than I have, has not had people contact her from high school. And within a few days, a friend of hers from her high school experience got in contact. But this is even more an interesting story, and I'm going to think about how I word this, because my wife was, um, my wife was, uh, you know, affiliated, not affiliated, but she was basically she'd go around to all the Grateful Dead concerts, she'd do various <laughs> she crafts. She was a deadhead. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I know. She has a she has oh. a skull tattooed on her back, which I tease her about because <laughs> I say it looks like carrot top. Uh-huh. <laughs> and she, she gets a great, I mean, the modern carrot top is, is a thing in and of itself. So, anyway, so my wife was a part of that set. And um, she had a lot of very interesting experiences early on. It was one of the things I really liked about knowing my wife um, and when we were dating, was just the sense that she is someone who has lived a life, you know? Yeah. She's done what she needed to do, and, you know, and she also has an immense sense of appreciation for the kind of things that I've done as well. So anyway, this friend of hers um, came up and, you know, we were going out to dinner and she said to me just before actually I got on this call with you, you better be really careful about what you say. And I said, um, she said, um, you, you better not ask questions about her mother. And it remind, she then said, you know, that and it immediately snapped with me 
that she had um, she had a group of friends, and there were two male friends who had taken an interest in this uh, woman now's mother. And the mother had disappeared in very strange circumstances, and these two now men uh, were brought up on murder charges a couple of years ago for the involvement with this woman. And it appears that um, there's some in- involvement with a cliff and getting rid of you know the remains and all this kind of stuff. But really, my wife grew up in um, both in the um, in the Brayer area of kind of Orange County, that area. And then also over the mountain in the kind of Victorville area. And it's kind of night and day. I really like Victorville. I like spending time with my in-laws there. But you get the impression that it really is, um, well, what do they call it? They call it the Inland Empire, but they have another term for it. But the you desert, just, I think. The desert, yeah, exactly. There's another yeah. word for it. So, yeah, you get the sense of just these people living very much a kind of... Uh, like lizards. Yeah, well, I don't know. I'm thinking more like, um, you know, various horror films or these kind of things where you just get the impression that things can turn on an instant. Um, well, you know, I've never, I never, I, once a year I go out to the desert and I go through a place called Joshua Tree. Oh, yes, I know that. Okay, I know that. You know, and yeah. it's, it's always just really interesting to go into a restaurant and see the people who live there, mm. you know, and just thinking about living in Joshua Tree. Yes. <laughs> you know? Have I told and you with the internet, you know, it might be okay. Who knows? It still isn't really. When we moved back here in two thousand and five, there was some anticipation because I could work remotely and did for the first year, there was some anticipation that we would live in Victorville near the in laws. <laughs> and there's absolutely no work there. I mean, even the work that I was doing yeah. I'd need to get to an airport which would basically get me into L.A., and my wife didn't like living in L.A., so it, there really is no work there um, for people that do the kind of stuff that I do. Um, and I don't know, it's just a very strange part of the world. I'm, I have a lot of time for it. I think it's a very, um, you know, the people that live there are very authentic. Authentic? Uh, now there's an interesting word. Well, they are what they are, and they're <laughs> yeah. not, they don't. Pull the, I, my mother, for example. So we talk about my my parents in an abstract sense. My mother came and stayed with my in-laws for about five days. The next door neighbour of my in-laws is a rail cop. He basically polices the local rail yard, but he's also fond of wandering around his front yard with, uh, I guess it's a Glock. Uh, with his handgun, just wandering around, kind of gesticulating. And my mother found this kind of really bizarre. And she also, find, I mean, I think culturally, my in-laws are the antithesis of my parents, really fundamentally. So, you know, you have all these wonderful kind of textures to this experience. And yeah, it's those damn humans again. You know, see, that's why I just find life difficult at this time on the surface of this planet. There's just too many damn humans around. Yeah. I had a funny story that came up this, this week, and it's also to do with childhood as well. Um, and we were driving, um, I think it might have even been last weekend, and there was a, um, a number plate uh, in front of us that was Piscean spelt out. And I said, what, what's this Piscian number plate? And I said, oh yeah, Piscian, Piscian. 
And it immediately triggered a memory from uh, early childhood, which I think it goes back to the whole description of, I don't know what, what Catholic boys school would be like, but I, you know, I grew up in, um, in an area initially before going to high school that was predominantly diplomatic children. Um, Canberra is the capital of Australia and my mother lived in a, in a suburb of Canberra and the primary school I went to, the grade school I went to was predominantly diplomats children. So it was a very kind of strange group of people, and most of the people that I associated with were either diplomats' children or one of my closest friends' father was an intelligence officer, so he worked for, I guess, the Australian equivalent of the CIA, and another friend's father was a mathematician, and we were a pretty tight group, and there must have been, I don't know, about half a dozen to maybe a dozen of us, what kind of 10, 11-year-old boys. And... Um, this one fellow's uh, place was a was a common kind of crash pad area, and we were over there watching videos. Uh, and this illicit tape was produced, and it was kind of dirty and what have you. And this was my first experience of pornography as a boy of maybe ten or eleven. So they produced this tape, they put it on, and it was. Um, this is actually quite ironic because I'm trying to get this podcast registered with iTunes currently and this will turn it into an explicit podcast. <laughs> it was a German urination film. And they put on this film and we watched it for about half an hour and this was my first experience of kind of pornography. Yeah. Uh, and a, a really This civic... is what them adults do. Huh? Exactly. <laughs> you can't imagine like a group of 11-year-old boys' faces just completely stunned, disgusted. Yeah. Like, uh, we watched it for about half an hour. I think well, a few got queasy and had to kind of leave stage left. And eventually, I mean, this, this was just the most... Foul. Absolutely. Well, that's got to explain large parts of your personality, whatever possibly parts. Possibly so. Are... <laughs> but this is just the most disgusting. Like, and it was, there was absolutely nothing erotic about it. It was just about bodily fluids. Anyway, so having seen this, I think eventually. Well, see, it goes so... to show you there's something terribly erotic about that to some people. That's Absolutely. what's so fucking interesting about them humans. What yeah. the hell is it about people that they think that is interesting? You know? Exactly. So about, after about half an hour, because I mean, obviously, you know, you had to be as manly as you could around your around your fellow male, um, you know. Yeah. So after about half an hour, I think those of us that and I, I remember covering my face for a good portion of it just because of so unbelievably disgusting. Well, that wasn't very manly. <laughs> well, no one was looking. I think everyone was just like finding parts of the room to avoid contact with the screen. So eventually the tape was removed and it was never played again. Uh, but uh, no, it's funny how those little triggers come through in, in life that you, oh, you're. And when I, I, I've told my wife this story in the past, but we, we were just laughing uncontrollably following this Piscean number plate with the story of young boys just being disgusted at, uh, at particularly perverse yeah, pornography. Yeah. Oh, man. So, no, that was the story that I wanted to put in. Okay, so what is another story that I've been thinking about? <laughs> well, the other thing that comes up, and this is this whole notion of truth, is... Um, my family in Australia, um, who I hadn't seen for a period of time and went back last year, there was an elderly cat that was originally my mother's cat and then one of my brothers picked up. 
um, although my brothers live in the family home. My um, mother hasn't really lived in the family home for years. She moved out to move to the UAE and then uh, came back and now lives in Sydney. But my brothers live in the family home with this elderly cat. And the cat recently had various kind of cancer problems. And actually, I should talk about him in the past tense because he passed away sometime over the weekend. They took him to the vet um, and had him put down. But this cat, there are three of us that have a completely different story about how this cat came to exist in the family. And the striking thing is I have a series of facts which I feel are undisputable (laughs) that describe how this cat arrived. This is about 15, 14 years ago that these events occurred. My brother has another series of what he believes are undisputable facts. Some of these things are uh, overlapping and there is a potential yeah. for a reality. But it strikes me as really strange that you can get three people. My mother has a completely different set of facts, <laughs> which are slightly more agreeable with my brother, which also follows another yeah. narrative. So I think it's it strikes me as I, my feeling is that I... For example, my grandfather, my my mother's father, had a series of stories that he told, and I really loved some of these stories. Uh, And my brother recorded him uh, probably about five, maybe six years ago now, telling these stories. And he told good idea. That's well, he told them. The irritating thing was he told different stories. I asked him to tell a specific (laughs) set of stories. He thought he was telling the same stories, and they were completely different. Yeah. So in a period of about 10 years, his stories of which (laughs) were probably the same story. Yeah, well, the old story's boring now, hell. (laughs) Yes, maybe my grandmother's influence had something to do with that. But this whole notion of language and how it maps onto reality and how it kind of skews onto reality... I thought it was an interesting topic of discussion. Well, I, see, I think the, even the concept of, to talk about language and it, how it matches reality strikes me as, again, th- th- we go back to that. I cannot figure a way to talk about that word reality that, may, mm. that I'm satisfied with. Mm. And um, my, one of my favorite quotes is Paul Václavic, who says, um, for it is known that language does not so much reflect reality as create it. Certainly. And, and this is exactly the point that I'm making as yeah. well. My concern is how on earth do you resolve these things in a coherent well, fashion? Well, or do you just in, give up? Yeah, in the past. Well, you can't, actually, because you're talking about something that happened 15 years ago. You do not have access to the facts. Mm. All you have access to is people's recollections. Mm. And... Those and, and there's no way to get past that. You're stuck right there. So the, all the work has to be done on a linguistic level. There isn't anywhere else you can go. So you can discover. I mean, a lot of times people confuse the difference between what happened and my experience of what happened. And and they because they confuse that internally. Then when they start telling stories, well, again, they they have never really examined these questions of truth and experience and stuff so those are not clear distinctions in their mind at all and this is the thing between my mother my brother and i we have lived in completely different parts of the world we have not unified these stories in any way i would love to sit down with the three of you and and, and (laughs) i believe me you wouldn't no 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 i mean specifically to to try to unravel these three stories on a linguistic level 
you know, just let me tell them to you because I can I can recount my story well and I can recount their stories relatively well as well. Okay. Well, th- all right. So anyway, let me let me try to I can reconstruct my version far easier than I can. So why don't I start with my sure, version? Yeah. So my mother had well, just. Re- you know, sorry. I'm sorry. Maybe you know, for some reason, what occurs to me is maybe just because you think you should start with yours, maybe you should finish with yours. Maybe okay. not. I, okay. I'm just throwing that out there. You start wherever you okay. want. So there, there are some basic irrefutable facts which which follow the three stories. Not first and, of all, I would say that's not true. They're not irrefutable facts. They're points of agreement between these three stories. Well, they relate, they relate to locations, which, anyway. Well, uh, but again, yeah, I agree with that, but I'm just saying let's clean up our language around this. There, there are points in which all three of these stories agree, link, you know, are using the same language. No, because, well, okay, let, let me explain the circumstances, and then maybe that will explain the circumstances better. Uh, <laughs> Could be. Okay, so... Both my mother, my brother, and I have... I wouldn't necessarily say that we were cat people, but we all we all have a, a fondness for cats. My mother had... Uh, I, don't, I don't know which of us share this component, but my mother moved from Australia to Malaysia when I was about 17. And when she left, she'd left the family cat with some neighbours... And the whole situation with regards to the neighbours picking up the cat makes me sense that my mother doesn't really necessarily like cats, but, you know, they're they're creatures of of luxury for her. Uh, And this cat lived with the neighbours, and when a family moved into the house, uh, the girl who was a kind of part... I don't think she was adopted, but basically she lived with them and did kind of made house cleaning duties and babysat the children, took the cat from the neighbours and moved the cat into our family home. The cat was obviously familiar with the family yeah. home. When my mother came back from Malaysia, the family that was living in the house left the house, funnily enough, and they took the cat with them. And there was a protracted argument between my mother and this girl about whether this cat should be returned. <laughs> okay. So following the situation, my... Mother was living in this relatively large house by herself and feeling relatively lonely. Now, it's very difficult because my chronology starts at this point. I should note that, the, okay, so the, within the local newspaper, this is my story, okay? okay. Right. So I'll start with mine because okay. it's easier to All tell. Right. Within the local newspaper, there was a pet of the week which were published every week. And one week, there was this picture of this cat that appeared in the pet of the week that my mother, for some reason, stuck on the refrigerator. And she left this cat on the refrigerator for about two weeks. And I said to her, why don't you call the animal shelter and adopt this cat? Because obviously you're interested in this cat. This cat was a strange looking cat. In Australia, they cut, if the cat has white tips on its ears, they cut the tips of the ears off because uh, the cats can get skin cancer and basically ah, kills them. Ah, so they cut ah. the tips of the ears off. So this cat basically had no tips of the ears. Now, I knew a fellow who owned a cat like that previously, so I, I knew that part of the story. Okay, so then this is where my brother's side of the story comes in. 
My brother goes over to my mother's place. He doesn't see the thing on the refrigerator. He just says, Mum, you've been feeling a little depressed. Let's go to the animal shelter and rescue a cat. And then my mother's side of the story is Felix, being the doting son, realises that she's depressed, takes her to the animal shelter, and they find this cat. So they, their stories commiserate. My point of the story was that and I... And they both agree that the cat on the refrigerator is the cat they... No, no, no. They, 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 the whole notion that there was a picture on the refrigerator is not part of either of their stories. Ah, they okay. That That's I made st- ah, okay. All right. Ah, so both of them are saying, no, he just came over and took her there and they got a cat. Yes, yes. And you're saying, though, that the cat on the refrigerator is the same cat they got. It's the same cat they okay. got. Okay. So then they get the cat, at which point uh, a wide variety of other events, which seem relatively immaterial. But this is, the, this is the, the end of the story, is that the origin of the cat, in terms of whether it's a picture on the refrigerator, whether it's my brother saying my mother is lonely, or whether my mother yeah. says my brother, you know, anyway. They, yeah. Their stories are more um, commensurate than my story is with that. And they're saying there never was even, at least your mother is saying, there never was even a photograph on the refrigerator? Both of them say there was never a photograph on the refrigerator, okay. and well, they say that this okay. is the creation of my okay. wanting yeah. to participate in the getting of this cat. <laughs> so, okay. to me, I can't imagine... And the thing is, there is actually there is actually a series of events which could make me show that this is the case. The library in Canberra keeps a microfiche of all the newspapers. Ah, yeah. And as a child... Have you checked that out? Well, it would require me to go there, where I've been back to Canberra once in the past 10 years, and even that was... But don't you have a friend there that could do a little research for you? I don't have a friend that I think is close enough that would spend the 10 (laughs) hours necessary to find a picture of it. But the thing that strikes me, and this comes up periodically, and also with my wife as well, and it strikes me as really strange because you have to disown your notion of reality at some point. Because if you want to resolve this... It's not just your... You have to give up the whole idea of reality itself. Yes. Yes. You know, I mean, except for what's going on right this moment. Whatever's going on right now, this is what's going on right now. Mm. The rest is language. Mm. I had a circumstance where I guess I was just recovering from a heavy cold. And I said to my, we were talking about my, neither of my brothers have ever been to the US. And I think probably that circumstance will continue on. And the only person, well, actually, no, my father's been to the US, but my father's never visited me in the US. He lived here um, when I was um, at obviously at junior high in LA. Um, but my mother is the only family member that's been here. And recovering from this cold, I said to my, I had this construction of my brother, ironically the same brother about uh, this cat story is based, that we had actually walked around a couple of art galleries here together and had all these. And as soon as my wife said, but, you know, your brother's never been here, and all this <laughs> collapsed, I realized that actually, as you say, your perception of reality is oftentimes, and particularly with regards to dreams as well, and this is something oh, yeah. we've talked 
that. I have such strong and lucid dreams uh, that oftentimes I find myself waking and having to reconstruct reality to see whether the, how these dreams fit into my life. I've had an occasion when I started telling somebody a story and I got halfway through the story when I realized, no, that was a dream. Yeah. <laughs> Never mind. Or I yeah. finished the story, but I was going on like this something that really happened. Yeah. Well, it did really happen. That's exactly the point. <laughs> it is true. It is true. Yes. We are strange creatures, we humans. <laughs> we are. Please speak for yourself. I'm not a human. Yeah. I have well, a human. Okay. Well, <laughs> I don't know. But by appearance, probably you're more human well, than my... I am. <laughs> well, the, see, this gets back to this whole concept of identity and stuff again. Mm-hmm. I, tra- I admit I travel around in a monkey. Yes. But that's yes. not what I is. True, true. So the final story I have is with regards to my friend Bruce. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not oh. through with this oh, okay. story. So okay. the, the fundamental uh, problem here is is the issue of the refrigerator and the picture on the refrigerator. Mm. Right? I mean, other than that, I mean... It's also to do with my mother and my brother's relationship with me. And this is what comes through this story, that... There was a period of time, and there's a huge guilt associated with me not going back to Australia. Not necessarily a guilt that I feel, but a guilt that is applied to me. (laughs) So what comes through this story is, Tom, you were never important. You never affected any decisions that we made. And your story is not important. Uh And if you don't hear that, this is really the concept that comes through this story. And I think that's based on the assumption that your story is more in accord with what actually happened than theirs. uh, Well, the the fact is, well, (laughs) there is no fact here, but I mean, I mean, they actually, well, I'm assuming that they believe what they're saying. You know, not that they've conspired <laughs> to, to make up this story consciously. Just well, they may to, have reinforced. I mean, my mother and my brother have lived in closer proximity to each other for a longer period of time and have so had they've reference had, to yeah, the cat. They've got a, a so they've reality they've created. Uh, exactly. There. Yeah, yeah. And you know, if you miss the if you miss the newspaper cutting, as my mother maybe wants to, then the story can take its own direction. And I think well, what, I mean, the thing is, it could actually be resolved, though. That's the beauty of this situation. Or, well, it couldn't be totally, but it certainly could be discovered whether that photo. I mean, you could could you draw that uh, picture? I mean, in the, oh, in the yeah. text layout and everything. So oh, I mean, yeah. so you could you could draw a pic, a pre-draw a picture mm. of it, and then if you if it was important enough, you could do the research and actually locate that. That I thing. could, but that yeah. could still say that I may have put it on my own refrigerator. Yeah, that's true. It, it, it won't prove so that, but it will. But it would go some it way. It exists. Uh, yes, it would yes. go some way to doing something. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Fascinating. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, let me see if I'm through with this yet. Okay. I'm not quite sure whether I'm through with this yet. Well, if it comes up, I'll just interrupt you. Very good. Very good. <laughs> So my final, which again comes back to this whole notion of reality, there is um, there is a large artificial life conference that has just gone on. In fact, it's um, not annual, but it's every other year. And they're numbered, so it's called A-Life, which is the generic term for artificial life. Well, or... Yes, exactly. Yeah, right. Exactly. So as your friends with Bruce Damer, you've been following his, um, his time there. 
I also am at a point of kind of audio saturation in terms of the fact that I have more audio now that I need to edit than I can edit yeah, probably yeah. in the near future, which is kind of difficult because I have to prioritize. Bruce Damer presented me with about four hours of audio initially from, uh, he talked at a game developers conference just before a life 12. And the lead up to this was that I had a long conversation, which was recorded. It's part of the bio podcast. It was the boat live 71. I want to say, and that related to a lot of technology that I was developing, but also that other people had developed and I thought were, was relatively exciting for this particular conference that Bruce was talking at. Similarly, he also had close proximity to a fellow called Jeff Kloon, who is really doing some amazing stuff currently and has had this written about in New Scientist and a wide variety of UK publications and these kind of things. So Bruce spent a day with Jeff Kloon and he spent probably about three hours both talking to me on Boat Alive and talking to me subsequently about all this stuff. And Bruce has a relatively standard talk that he gives now about his um, EvoGrid development. This is another really good example of how more than one person have a completely different view of history. And this is actually really quite fascinating because I originally, I, um, with regards to Bruce's development of the EvoGrid, I have a very defined view of the history, and it's backed up by audio recordings, literally tens if not hundreds of hours of audio uh, that I've taken with Bruce in the past four years, plus publications and a variety of other things. So I believe, perhaps foolishly, that I have sufficient data to actually show how this thing fitted together. Um, ironically, people that had previously not necessarily attacked me, but said, you don't really need to say this out loud, are now saying that this thing, as it evolves in Bruce's discussion, is not being referenced adequately with regards to what actually happened. My relationship with Bruce is interesting because I describe Bruce as my avatar in the real world. Bruce goes out, he goes to these conferences, he gives all these talks, but a lot of the stuff that he talks about is stuff that either I or people I know of have impacted in his discussion. Yeah. So, for example, uh, Freeman Dyson... Does he, does he claim otherwise? Or, I mean, he is he claiming originality or just doesn't make citations? He doesn't, he doesn't acknowledge... This is this has been because a sticky... All of the, I, do, I talk a lot about... I mean, I do the same thing in the sense that I, I mouth off all the time about my Certainly. theories. But all of yeah. my theories have come from all the people I've read. Yeah. The primacy of a lot of this stuff is is pretty accurately tracked in terms of Bruce. And this is also... A kind of, but Bruce acknowledges, as 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 I'll tell the story as he did today, yeah. the fact that he can't survive without the kind of contact that he has with people such as myself. Sure, but um, I don't know. It's okay. So to lay out this prior to the A Life conference, we'll talk a little bit about the, oh, the difference between him and me is that he's making his living doing it. <laughs> well, this is the interesting. This is the point. I mean, I think the. I just Certainly. do it as a hobby. Yeah, well, very much so. And this is a point that my mother in particular made. When I was in Australia, she would see these long emails from Bruce. Bruce at the time was meeting with Freeman Dyson, the, the famous physicist, and I provided him a lot of material for those meetings. And my mother said to me, why are you providing all this fascinating information to this man that he's just going to recite as his own and he's going to keep on? <laughs> and this is the notion of the avatar in the real world, uh, that basically yeah, there is some, there's some representation out there, but it's a very strange thing. 
So anyway, Bruce came to this conference, this game developer conference, and my feeling is that the game developer community, they don't hold any real answers, but they hold a lot of manpower and a lot of momentum and a lot of potential, person power, what have you. Uh, and they are a group that constantly needs to be shown the potential in the future and what is going on currently so we can possibly create a series of interesting games or at least change aspects of game development for the better. So this is something I've talked about pretty well ad nauseum with Bruce and others, and he understands that. He went to this game developer conference and gave what I would consider probably a D-minus talk. It was not so much visionary as it was talking about what occurred in the mid-90s. He didn't talk about any of the stuff that I was doing, any of the stuff that Jeff Kloon was doing, any of the stuff that is current within the artificial life community, and his knowledge or his description really stopped in the mid-90s. And I've heard him do this previously, and it's offended me and upset me previously quite strongly. Have you talked to him about it? I've done interventions with him about this, where other people have participated as well. Quite ironically, the, the last intervention was done in Second Life, um, because this this is the only environment where you can bring you know multiple people together. And so I have talked to Bruce, and he does on some, although he won't acknowledge it, he does understand it. It really, um, it really upsets me. It makes me feel, firstly, that I devote a lot of time into supporting Bruce and I feel that that time is not really productively used in these kind of circumstances I think he could do a lot better and I think the people that he's communicating to are too important to give a bad story to um, and also this is something that I've gotten feedback from other members of the community so what I wanted to do was take this audio of the talk, it's about 90 uh, sorry, it's about 59 minutes, and uh, present it to a number of other folks in the artificial life community to give what I described constructive feedback to Bruce. Uh, he was initially hesitant, but then he was relatively sympathetic towards us because I basically framed it that this is something that is too important to get yeah. wrong repeatedly. Yeah. So I'll be doing that in the next few days um, as in a kind of intervention way. But... The other thing is with regards to this A-Life conference, the artificial life community is moving in a variety of different directions. And what strikes me initially is that very few of these directions I'm sympathetic to. Uh, you have a group of people, primarily academics, that aren't doing, from what I can see, and certainly other people that I respect, uh, on some level, they're not doing particularly good work. They're constantly chasing something which doesn't, you know, they're, they're talking about now manufacturing cells. They're getting into aspects of, I don't know, theoretical biochemistry, which has really got nothing to do with software or, or the stuff that well, I work on. two really different definitions of artificial life. I mean, one is, you know, all, is genetic manipulation, and the mm. other is computers. Well, and, and I mean, our, it sounds to me like these are getting mixed up. Well, there's only ever been... The definition is, was convoluted for two reasons. Artificial life was, as a term, well, you can take it back to, I think, Hobbes 
was the first philosopher in like the 15th century to put the term artificial life together. Um, but more recently, the term was coined by a fellow called Chris Langton in the late 90s. That very much, well, that was defined as life as it could be. But when he says life, I mean, he's talking about biological life. No, he's not. Oh, he's not. He's he's not. He's talking about life as it could be, which means not life as it is, but as it could be. He defined it in such a way that it was relatively sympathetic to this notion of wet artificial life, which is what you're talking about with regards to biochemistry. You then have, um, and now my mind has gone, uh, Craig Ventner, yeah. You then have Craig Ventner using the term artificial life two years ago to mean yeah. this idea. Yeah. However, he, he, for whatever reason, changed his tune and now uses uh, another term, which my mind's gone blank, but not artificial life anymore. My concern here is, and I've only really ever done soft artificial life, I do have some interests and sympathies with hard artificial life, which is robotics. Um, but... I think that there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on with soft artificial life. I think that there are a number of people that are contributing to this, and I invest well, let, let a good portion of my time in this as well. Yeah. I'm curious about, because when, I think, when I'm thinking of software artificial <laughs> life, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the stuff, I mean, you can go back to what's in Conway's Game of mm-hmm. Life stuff, you know. And, that, and the, only, the only thing even vaguely interesting to me Interest, yeah, is it would be really artificial consciousness. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you could make artificial ants, I don't really give a shit. Yeah, you know, if you but but if you can make something that exhibits conscious properties, mm-hmm. I mean, that's what I find. I mean, but it, I'm not so sure that's, that's what you're talking because the the other kind of artificial life, like Ventner's doing, mm-hmm. is is like good for making fuels out of bacteria and lots of really interesting applications but and, and also changing our own biology i mean that's certainly something to be looked at too but that, that's like just a completely different arena than the idea of artificial consciousness or exactly. artificial intelligence so i guess the question is how does artificial life in the software sense relate to that side of it or are there people who are just interested in making you know software ants or so, is that just a step to something further well i think software ants are a step to artificial consciousness and i think artificial consciousness as you describe is very much a part of certainly the movement that i feel i'm a part of well i think uh, it's the only interesting part of it as far as i well, can see yeah, I, I would agree. Business, whether you can get things to multiply or not, I mean... <laughs> I would agree. I mean, you're talking to the choir here, Heron. Okay, well, I, I know, but I'm just I, trying to get clear about what we're talking so about, because your language... You know, I mean, I'm not up on this stuff. Exactly, so, exactly. So I need to get some terms so, defined, so... Certainly. So I me. think the idea of artificial consciousness, and this is... Jeff Kloon's work as well, he actually talks about creating artificial brains and developing consciousness from there. Tom Ray, and this is the frustrating thing with the Bruce Damer talk, Tom Ray, who Bruce Damer referenced with his earlier work with Tierra, which was very simple um, kind of uh, bacteria and software fundamentally and evolution of this kind of software bacteria, he now develops artificial consciousness. I mean, artificial consciousness is the vanguard of what I would consider soft artificial life. 
very little of that is ever discussed either by these academics in their get-togethers or um, really I, I think this part of artificial light as far as I can see is the thing that is the most, I mean, c- clearly from my perspective it's the most exciting but it's also what is least talked about, it was least understood, although Jeff Clune has done very well in terms of putting this back into public discourse, into new scientists, uh, and into a series of UK publications. So it is out there, but it's not really... Ironically, Jeff Clune didn't go to the A-Life conference, he went to the Gecko conference instead. And I think the Gecko conference is really showing itself as being a superior conference to the A-Life conferences now. The A-Life conferences had a sharp spike in numbers for the last one and had a sharp drop in numbers for this one, primarily, I think, because of the location, but also, I think, because it's really becoming a series of things which people such as myself really can't feel the need to participate in. I mean, I, in terms of wet artificial life, I think it's interesting, but what interests me with it is creating... APIs, application programming interfaces, actual modes of writing soft artificial life interfaces into wet artificial life. So you can take artificial consciousness and wrap that in in wet wet. Uh, but that isn't even really part of the discussion. Yeah, but you know, who cares about about biology at this point? Yeah, I mean, I'd say exactly. biology. Exactly. Who the hell cares? Exactly. Except so, you know, that it might be useful, like in creating biofuels and stuff. True, but true. I mean, but, it has nothing to yeah. do with the consciousness side. It's just getting exactly. getting bacteria to make stuff. So my frustration with wet artificial life is that it's it's just biochemistry of about thirty yeah. years ago with a whole lot of what ifs attached. Yes, well, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing, but it's not what you're interested well, it's academia. in. It's academia. <laughs> yeah. of, well, no, I think it's important work. It's just like there are lots of things that need to get worked on, and wherever exactly. your passion so, is, that's where you go, and that's not where so, you or my passion is. So, <laughs> so but Bruce's stuff with the Evo Grid kind of moves into that area, and he's very sympathetic to these people to the point where all of the other stuff, particularly the artificial consciousness stuff, is is lost. Um, He's probably not interested in that stuff. That's easy to say. My concern is that Bruce acts as a... The notion of the avatar of the real world, I feel very strongly with Bruce because I can't attend these conferences. And if he's attending the conferences as a representative of Biota, which he does in part, then Ah. everything that occurs in Biota... Is his representative needs does to he walk actually it. make that statement that he's uh, as a representative of Biota? He does. Oh, he then does. maybe he shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. So, <laughs> so this is the difficulty. This yeah. Is the difficulty. yeah I see. But anyway, the skull thing came to a head today, um, and uh, he said, "I just can't listen to all this audio." And quite frankly, I'm I'm a little flummoxed by the whole thing because I just don't see this as being part of. A movement now. The International Society of Artificial Life, which we've talked about previously, is the group that creates this um, A Life conference. And my frustration with it is, firstly, you can't get on the board because they pick the board out at these A Life conferences. I can't ever attend these A Life conferences. But more importantly, there are no artificial life conferences that occur, well, have ever occurred where I have lived. Uh, so when I lived in the UK, there were no A-Life conferences in the UK. As soon as I moved to the US, they stopped having A-Life conferences in the US, and they start having them in the UK and Europe. So, Is it a so conspiracy? I don't think it's a conspiracy. I just think it's the notion that the people that are running the show 
have their own particular interests in these areas and yeah. then the the lo- location so there's a theoretical biology conference that's happening in Salt Lake City next year, and apparently they want a, a biota track associated with that. The, that has its own political thing. I'll probably go to Salt Lake City yeah. uh, just to just to see it on the ground. And I'm supposed to be. This is the much. Uh, well, the, the chapter's not due until the end of September, and I'll have it done by the end of September. But there's a chapter in a book that's associated with this. Um, but anyway, the feedback that Bruce gave me today, which is why he is so successful and why we've worked together for more than a decade, even through these kind of continuous teething problems, is that he said, and the number of people that approached him were without name, but he said a number of people approached him and said, everything that I'm doing with Biota is, you know, is... Um, furthering the movement and that, you know, there will no doubt be a ISAL, you know, board position available for me if I'm so interested in all these kind of things, which I thought was pretty well timed in terms of the stuff that had gone on prior to this. But also, I don't know, it gives me a sense that when I feel powerless and insignificant to these kind of things, I'm probably not acknowledging a good body of the work that I've already produced or the reality of, you know, the stuff that I've done. And I probably should reflect more that, um, you know, th- things aren't as bad as they originally seem. <laughs> no, look how much fun you're having. I would agree <laughs> in large part. And quite frankly, I don't think I could invest the emotion in going to one of these A-Life conferences. Well, kind it of... might be fun. You know, you never can tell. You know, I don't but, know. But, I, uh, well, we've already talked about yeah. the whole notion of feeling dirty at these things. Yeah. Well, see, I'll I'd change... love to go to those things. I, I, I don't yeah. mind wallowing in their dirt because it doesn't touch me. Mm. You know? The most fun I've – I didn't share this this thing with you, but the most fun I ever had attending a convention – and this is really quite an admission. And this also talks about what we talked about in terms of the artist. I went to um, what they call a Games Day in the UK, which is just like a free-for-all toy soldiers event. And I had developed this relationship with all these painters and sculptors and writers and these kind of things in the UK, which was all done via email. And I went to this event in Birmingham. It was about probably four months before we left the UK. Maybe, yeah, about four months before we left the UK. And I met almost all the people that I'd been corresponding with. Mm. And it was a phenomenal experience because I actually felt, firstly, uh, unbelievably fundamentally nerdy, uh, no social (laughs) redeeming experience. But basically, and all these people, I mean, for example, one of the uh, lead figure painters was a detective. Uh, he worked with a police um, department. He had a psychology degree, but it ended up in kind of forensic detective yeah. degree. That he was a, a real interesting job. That oh, could be, yeah, that would be fascinating. Yeah. So I spent most of the day with him, and then I met the, another fellow who was a paint, who's painted the majority of my toy soldiers, and he was in the military. He was in NATO for a period of time through the um, the Yugoslav conflict and various other conflicts. And he was a fascinating fellow as well. He now lives in Florida um, with his new wife. Um, and then, so I met, you know, half a dozen of these people, plus, uh, you know, various rule designers and authors and these kind of things who are, you know, well-known in their particular area, but also now 
work for computer games companies and these kind of things. And it just gave me a sense that these were people who, I don't know, it was just, um, it's the best, it's probably the best day I've spent surrounded by a lot of humans in living memory. And it struck me that in this environment where I had no meaning, I mean, I have some interest, but it was just an ability to not necessarily have an emotional investment in the circumstance, but just meet people. Yeah, and, and there's like ego. The, get, you know, the artificial life and artificial intelligence <laughs> community is full of ego oh, very and much contributing so. to the future <laughs> and yeah. changing the world. Yeah, doing and, absolutely nothing. You know, yes. and, and all these fucking toy soldier yeah. people just can't have any of those illusions. It's not <laughs> even know, They're that. fucking toy soldier people. True. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So I guess that's I guess that really yeah that struck me and the irony was my wife um, didn't want to obviously didn't want to have anything to do with it but wanted to come to Birmingham <laughs> so she was sitting in bed uh, watching I guess pay per view movies in a quite a swanky hotel that I got beside the convention and she had a wonderful time as well but the thing that struck me was I as you do develop all these relationships online with people. And it is a real luxury to actually meet people having developed these relationships. I mean, I found this when I was in the Bay Area. Everyone I met in the Bay Area, I had never actually met in real life. I'd just been corresponding with them. But I immediately felt with some of them in particular that I had a good friendship with them because I'd known them and talked to them, and particularly the biota-related people, because I'd talked to them over a period of three, four, five years. Um and I guess that was the same kind of thing. My sense with conferences and this kind of formality, and as you said, this is really not a space that I want to be a part of. And It's not the space, it's the people in the space. Exactly. I mean, that's exactly my point. That yeah. the, this whole notion of that we can be hermits, and when we want to emerge from our hermitness, we can emerge from our hermitness. And do what we need to do, but yeah, the there are various toxic personalities that well, I you think have to build a network. That's you know, yeah. I've got like two hundred people on my Skype contact list now, and yeah. twenty or thirty of them are really good. Yeah, and the rest are I, I'm not quite sure, but they're on my contacts list, and I don't put people on my contacts list easily. Yes. And following our last conversation, particularly the whole deconstruction associated with this model rail podcast, I had a huge amount of feedback since we recorded that, that actually this model rail podcast is, well, you're right, this whole notion of nurturing and feeding that one might get through biota. But basically, there are a lot of people that are very responsive and very receptive to my contributions through that as well. And I think actually saying it out loud and thinking about it made me realise that really all these components are good, but one can't really, I don't know, depreciate perhaps, deprecate the the you know, the fact that these ethereal things or apparently ethereal things are actually quite positive and nurturing as well. What things are you talking about? What Well, for example, in our last discussion I kind of deconstructed my whole relationship with this model rail podcast yeah. in terms of the fact that it's not really a primary hobby of mine. Ironically, the description of gluing, which I gave in the podcast on, on Saturday, uh, was immediately harped on by a young fellow who I guess is 18 now and a musician in New England, but still living at home and still, I guess, really going through some kind of self-discovery. 
and it gave me a sense really that um I, I guess I could be quite comfortably considered a model railroader, even though I shouldn't actually deny that at some level. And in creating the podcast, basically, I've created this network of people that look to me uh, as the, you know, the introductory model rail person that yeah. they're listening to. <laughs> well, so maybe I should just embrace it. Maybe well, I should just well it's for what it is, yes. It is. It is. It just this, all you can do is be who you are. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So no, I think particularly the whole actually talking about it out loud with you. A lot of a lot of what we do here and here, I feel, is is kind of talk therapy <laughs> for my week. And no, certainly yeah. I've I felt this with regards to uh, actually verbalizing the distinctions between the two main podcasts that I do. I have registered this podcast that we are doing currently with iTunes. My only concern with that is I, because I don't even think about explicit tags. Um, I didn't register it with an explicit tag. I'm not going to be too yeah. worried about that. No, you know. right. We don't have to worry. You can always add them later. Yeah, yeah that's right. No need to worry. So anyway, yeah. so hopefully I'm... I'm epistemology I'm... needs to be in there. Yes, definitely. You know, anyone who searches for epistemology, we want them here. <laughs> very much so, very much so. Even if they think it's a strange kind of pornography. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah, even better. <laughs> even better. They will get both tracks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yes. Uh, but no, I, I think uh, I, I, we're not going to be able to do this thing next week, unfortunately, Heron. Um, and oh, it looks like I'm probably going to be on, on lockdown somewhere, but I'm really looking forward when I get back doing a, a decompression session uh, with regards and, to... And what, you're go where, what are you going to be doing next week again? I'm, I'm, a, I'm locked down in a research facility, which is just absolutely the worst possible circumstances. My hotel is within walking distance from the facility because I don't anticipate leaving within sunlight. Um, but it's, yeah, it's the... It's the nature of my day job, unfortunately. Um, so I'll be there for the majority of the week, and my hope is I'll get back Thursday night. However, unlike previous trips that I've done, I now have a company credit card, which means it won't actually cost me financially initially. It will just yeah. um, it will come out of uh, some company tab. And that in and of itself, you know, I'm really, really very lucky to have work currently. Do you so, enjoy what you're doing? I mean... Um, uh, with the view that um, uh, this is going out into the public domain, I will say that I'm happy to have work currently and I'm happy to be able to do things like I'm doing with you, do things like I'm doing with Biosa, Model Rail, And Rager. doing what you do next week is what allows you to do things exactly. like this. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I got it. So, yeah, I so got that's... It. And the fact is that... Um, I mean, I think about things like, you know, being able to live in a house and uh, have pets and, you know, have a wife who, uh, you know, we survive, we live, and in large part, and this is a, very much what I think is, I, I guess, part of just being an adult, that you need to realise that to have some luxury, some small luxury, you have to put up with doing things that you probably wouldn't normally do. Well, it just depends on what you call luxury and... How much of it you need <laughs> or decide I, that you want. I would agree, but I mean, I think... I mean, the, I think I've got an iPhone. I've got a, some rings that I've worn for years that I like. I've got my computer, which, as far as I'm concerned, couldn't possibly be better. Mm. And, uh, I've, and I've got everything 
that I actually need. And the rest, I mean, and you know, I, I mean, it would be nice to have a better car and more space and a number of things, maybe. Yes. But really, you know, I can't imagine. I mean, I've got. I can't imagine. I mean, if I could have been King Henry the Eighth, I wouldn't train my life uh, to live like he did. Oh. No, ulcers on the leg. Oh, no, no it's awful. You know, it's <laughs> pathetic, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, I think um, certainly as as I as I read books and these kind of things, and within the next two weeks, I mean, probably within the next couple of days, you will be receiving my uh, book, my childhood ramblings. All right. Uh, which, no doubt, this is probably what we'll be deconstructing, actually, in two weeks' time. If well, I, well, that's right. I may, because I may... The thing is, I've got to, like I say, I, I'm in the middle of a book right now that I'm really having fun with. Mm. So uh, I'm, I'm definitely not going to start yours until I finish this. Certainly. Understood. Understood. And, um, yeah, well, mine, we'll is, see. mine is a book that I personally, although I'm relatively familiar with it, but I did run my eye over every word and it took about four hours to read. It's a fast, it's, yeah, it's, it's designed and for and a it's light It's fiction, theme. too, right? I mean, it's a novel, it's a story. Hmm. It's not yes. non-fiction. It's not like I have to take notes, <laughs> you know, and, hmm. and, and write about hmm. everything. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I don't, let's see how you find it, Harold. Well, well, let's yeah, I'll just yeah, leave it to me. Yeah. <laughs> I'll deal with it. Yeah. There's um yeah, there's some music and stuff that kind of goes along with it, but I've kept that completely separate. Although I've intertwined it in some way in it. Uh, but no. Let's conclude. Have you ever considered, uh, you know, an MP3 of you reading your book? I have considered that, and I think there's a distinct possibility that that would be useful. My concern here is... Because I think I'd ra almost rather do that than read it. <laughs> mm -hmm. I love... I love people reading story mm. i mean story is, is an audio thing it's not a reading thing it's mm. sitting around the campfire the thing that interests me i i would agree with you i would agree with you in, because the reason that you're receiving this is because when i read it last year towards the end of the la last year i read it out loud through sections because i really like the meter of certain yes, sections of it. Yes, so yes, yes. so that I'm, I'm agreeable to that I guess my interest, uh, you are being used as a test subject fundamentally because my interest is first whether you can complete it, the kind of time frame that you complete it in, and your general level of interest. You are well, a, I'm a slow reader. Okay, so that may. The real question there is whether you find it gripping or sufficiently interesting to read yeah, whether it. Whether I finish it or not. Exactly. Yeah, so this, this is the first test case. Believe it, I, I found two people that I work with passed it on to them. One of them is an avid science fiction reader, and another one is just a fellow who um, who is the period of process of getting a divorce, who I've kind of befriended. <laughs> and um, neither of them have really made, and they've had it for five, maybe six weeks now, neither of them have really made inroads to it. Which I mean, have they I, started it? Yeah, they, well, I mean, they, they read, like, a, is there a preface or anything? Or? No, it's not like that, but I guess, I guess my sense is if it's not applicable, if it's not applicable to an American reader, my hope was to release it in this country first. If yeah. it's only applicable to an Australian oh, reader, then that in itself feeds into it. But my aim with this, and this is probably why I won't release a spoken word version, is just firstly I filed copyright on it, but just get it out with copyright filed on it 
with the view that it is probably better suited for film than it is even ah, for narrative. Ah. Uh, so my interest is to get it out there, to have copyright on it, to have it out there for a period of time, and then either work with someone who has an experience writing screenplays or yeah. get it in, because I think there's certainly a need currently in, in modern Hollywood for, for you know, um, unique is not the right term, original material. Yeah. Uh, so I guess that's my sense <laughs> for this. If it fails dismally through early test readers, and basically it's getting, well, I don't know. I, I can't really anticipate whether two people not reading it is a good barometer for its quality or what have you. But you will be the third, and maybe the casting vote. Um, so yeah, Uh-oh. I'm interested. Don't put any pressure it. on me. I'm not putting any pressure. On you. If you don't read it, don't then worry. no, no. I, I, listen, I'm going to read it because, or at least I'm going to start it. <laughs> just because you know yeah. like i say it'll give us something to talk about yes, <laughs> you know I, and i may I, very well finish it even if i don't like it just mm-hmm. so i can be more articulate in telling you what a piece of shit it is very good so you know or i may just be so disgusted with it that i can't can't get past the first 20 or 30 pages in which case no listener will hear anything so yeah so this is going to be so many possibilities so yeah. many possibilities for humiliation. That's so yeah. wonderful. Or who knows? I might even like it, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, but I wouldn't count on it. I'm a pretty tough critic. Mm. I kind of got that sense of when I showed you the video that I t- took in my early 20s of the apartment yeah. I lived in in Los Gatos. I thought, as a time and a place and a video style, and really, if you look at even modern-day YouTube, the way in which these tiny handheld cameras are used yeah. is very different to kind of traditional film. Uh, well, but the way they're used is that they're not used well. They keep shifting the, sh- the you know, they don't hold, you know, you never can see anything because just when, by the time your eye starts to focus on something, yeah. it moves somewhere else. I would argue that that's the nature of the form. No, that's, you, no, that's, just, that's the nature of a bad photographer who doesn't understand see, the nature I of think, the video. Well, I think the whole the whole YouTube environment is very distinct from... What you see in YouTube in terms of small screen, small space versus what no, you I'm see in the about, I'm talking about allowing the, the eye sufficient time to register what it's looking at and yes. appreciate it. If, yeah. if, if the camera never stops or, or moves so frequently that you can, that, I mean, it, I mean, it, you can call that a style if you want and people could even do it consciously, but it's not one that I get anything out of. Yes. I say that was a very personal. See, I think that wasn't a, a, a photo. That wasn't a video document. That was a personal message to somebody, and your voice, and and you were really what that was about. And and seeing the places, those were all nice, but that was a, a thing between you and, and the person you made that for. Yes, who was my wife or and my fiance? And, and, and that and it's perfect for that. <laughs> She's yes. not a film critic, certainly. Certainly. <laughs> you know, but I am. Yes. Well, let's conclude with some YouTube footage that I filmed recently that you were more sympathetic towards, and that was of four out of five of our cats. Now, when I say I'm not a cat oh, person, one, yet, yeah. I, am, and, uh, I own five cats. Yeah, my well, wife, you're a cat person, face it. Yes, yes. <laughs> Get over well, it. My wife, yeah, I think... Uh, my wife, I'm, I feel like I was dragged into the circumstances. Oh, my you wife live with down. a cat person. Maybe that's it. 
Well, you see, my my wife's family has always had a lot of cats because they always lived in a kind of apex point in the desert where the cats just arrive. Yeah. And of the cats that we own, two of them come from that environment. Uh, one that featured the... Actually, the Persian that featured in the footage, which is the kind of grey and white one that has very peculiar movements. Yeah. Uh, he was found in the desert. In fact, he lived in a bush in my in-law's property. <laughs> they, they brought him out. But I think uh, I'm so, so having seen that I the addition of music to video is something that I really like, oh, and that, that was great. That that's a great particular. choice of music. Too. Yeah, really my wife was. my wife got me to to pick the particular. I did the filming too. She was operating the laser from our, our loft area. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think the uh, the. The ability to put music and video together, but the whole notion of pet ownership, we talked a little bit about this with regards to your dog, but our cats are, um, it's a very strange relationship that you have with a pet. Uh, and it's a, something that I've tried to deconstruct and tried to intellectualize and understand. It's not in any way simulated a noble ape yet. The noble apes do not have pets. I mean, their kind of relationship with their children is very pet-like, but lots of people have pet-like relationships with their children. <laughs> yeah. uh, but the addition of pets into noble ape, I think, would be a very interesting dynamic that I haven't really even considered. But for us, the cats, because there are so many of them, uh, they form a kind of ah, intelligent a, agent. A yeah, tribe. Very much a tribe. Much a tribe. tribe. <laughs> yeah. None of them are related to each other, but they all... But they're not it, humans. Exactly. And they live with the humans. <laughs> very much so. And they have their own... They're very much their own personality. Yeah, and yeah. it's it's quite a striking thing, particularly because um, the Persian, for example, I never could imagine owning a Persian cat. They're quite grotesque looking. I mean, he has a concave skull. His nose is literally the shallowest point of his face and the rest of his face kind of emerges around the yeah, nose. Yeah. And uh, he has to move his head in order to see things because he has no field of vision, obviously. Yeah. But out of all the animals we've owned, he's probably... And I call him the evil genius cat. He's our evil genius cat because he looks like that. He looks like, you know, something from a James Bond film. But he has multiple personalities and he really is a very um, lovable creature. He has one personality that's like a ninja and moves around in this kind of strange, you know, 1960s ninja-like movie. But he's also the one that gets along with me the best. Uh, and he's probably the one that I spend the most time with. The others I get on with as well, but their relationship is considerably more utilitarian in terms of uh, <laughs> right. food and yeah, these kind yeah. of... You're the guy that provides the stuff. Exactly. My <laughs> wife has a better relation, but it's also to do with... I mean, my wife, we haven't talked about this, but my wife hasn't been employed for... Well, since January last year, so she spends a lot of time in the house. And when I, when we got our first cat, I spent a lot of time in the house. And my relationship with that cat, our only female cat, was very, very strong. Cats, in terms of the amount of time that you spend with them, will typically represent your relationship with them. Yeah, I've uh, had cats before. I like cats too, so mm. I'm with you on that. I we've we've had dogs as well. My wife claims to be more a dog person, thus blaming the five on me um, but um, I think we, we probably are intrinsically and large, large part of it is our kind of you know dogs you got to walk them you got to you know make sure that they're outside for a period of time all this kind of stuff I guess we've had dogs in the past but I've dealt with that and I've walked dogs and I don't have any problem with that but cats are more 
associated with, you know, coming in, reading a book, you know, sitting down. Mm-hmm. Here's another thing which we haven't talked about. I, um, when we talk about this whole notion of the psychedelic community and substances and what have you, I don't drink alcohol anymore. Um, I haven't drunk alcohol for about seven or eight years. Uh, and it's something which is very strange because we don't have any alcohol around us either. My family, who are all, um, I wouldn't necessarily say heavy alcohol consumers, but certainly, you know, like alcohol, feel that my relationship with my wife has caused the situation. But actually, <laughs> this is some problem you have. Yeah, but actually, it's to do with an uncle who, who, um, who I have who lost his children and lost his, basically lost his life through alcohol. And I think because I have that genetic connection, and really, I mean, I used to drink quite a bit, but it was never anything that I got any benefit out of. So I just made the decision quite consciously to stop drinking. And I don't think, I mean, it's not something I need. The other thing is, um, I found it dulled my senses, and particularly my just ability to, uh, you know, reason and do things like that. I felt irrespective of, you know, consumption or what have you. Yeah. It's really changed my whole thinking process. But um, it's something my family finds very alien. Yeah. I mean, do they drink, like, every night? Because uh, I know people, a lot of people who just, it's common to have, mm-hmm. uh, you know, several beers. You know, like yes. a six-pack of beer every yeah. night. Yeah, you know, and they get up and go to work, and they're not having any problems. Uh, they're not; they don't think of themselves as alcoholics. They just like beer. Yeah. In you know? in the case of well, I don't necessarily want to name family members, but in certain circumstances, I don't think it's beer with. Actually, it is beer with some of them. It's wine with others. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think. But um, yeah, my feeling is that, um, and it's funny because it's also something which is thought of as being very Australian. I first stopped drinking when I was in the US and I stopped for about six or seven months and then ironically my wife was coming my fiance not even fiance at the time my girlfriend uh, was coming to stay and one of what's the ex-minders said you've got to put food in your house because I haven't you've seen the video <laughs> and nothing there so we yeah. went out shopping and he bought all the stuff that Americans would like to yeah. eat this was yeah. the thing that was so it looked boring. like somebody lives yeah. there yeah. yeah so he bought a bottle of Zinfandel because my wife did actually mention to me that she liked Zinfandel and I had this bottle of Zinfandel in the house that my wife had a glass of and then she left and I hadn't drunk alcohol for about seven months I just thought, oh, this is ridiculous. So I put on some CDs and drank the Zinfandel and realized that I had oh, there was some kind of connection. I mean, I composed a lot of music. I still try to compose music. Uh, and I kind of listened to my music and drank the Zinfandel. And I guess the time that I stopped drinking for good, I was in the UK. And I was very aware that my time in the UK was making me quite depressed. And I thought, let me see what happens if I remove alcohol, and I haven't had a drop of alcohol. Wait, I got to stop you for a second because it was interesting that you mentioned earlier the best place you ever lived was mm-hmm. the UK, but you were depressed when you were there. My circumstances. Well, I, we don't need I to talk you, about it. I mean, that's a whole other podcast. But that's no, no, but, no. But let, let me make this point: uh, the the nature of the depression was solely surrounding my work there, uh, my day job there. And that also related to the fellow who, a year after I left, um, committed suicide. Yeah. My work environment in the UK was very toxic. When I talk about the UK, firstly, I get the sense that I probably wouldn't have maintained that job if I'd stayed in the UK. If I returned to the UK, I wouldn't have that job. Uh-huh. 
the job was the I toxicity. I understand what you're talking about now. Yeah, and okay. the um, and you were talking I, about the financial situation there, the taxes and the and the no and the, the things no, you the, get from it. And... The job was the job was really 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 toxic, and it was toxic because of one individual in particular. And it was a strong life lesson that, even though there are elements of that in my current job as well, but it was a strong life lesson. The the thing that made it all bearable was the UK. You can have a toxic job anywhere uh, in the Okay, but it was the thing the that UK, made it easier to deal with. Was yeah. the UK? That's and right, because you had better medical care for your heart attack and stress. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I think the circumstances were I did everything other than the job. Yeah. Everything other than the job was great. Yeah, was great. Yeah, okay, okay. Um, and the ability I just, to I just heard that and and connected the two and yeah, you you have to have that explanation, which yeah. is like, uh, <laughs> but uh, no, in fact, I think if if I hadn't been in the UK, things would have gone very differently. You'd probably in terms be in jail now. Well, <laughs> who knows? Who knows? But anyway, so yes, that was the time of my life, and yeah, I haven't, and it's funny because. Um, yeah, it's just one of these things, I think. So uh, the other thing is that I have a relatively good knowledge of alcohol, or at least prior to um, when I stopped drinking. I mean, there are new beers and wines and things. Yeah. But certainly uh, my family has a strong appreciation for wine in particular. Uh, um, so I still buy wine for people, and I still But you know, don't buy them Sunset Blush, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> I know what it, I can imagine what it tastes like, and I can imagine that, you know, well, you know, my wife drank Zinfandel, and well, really... Zinfandel is one thing, white Zinfandel is something quite different. True. <laughs> she drank pink Zinfandel, which oh, is that's even worse. Exactly. So, okay. so, yeah. But anyway, I, I can't make light of these kind of things here. Uh, but so, yeah, I think they kind of... In terms of the stuff that we've discussed, do you have anything more that you you want to talk about? Oh no, no I'm uh, I'm fine. Okay, so we've got two weeks away from each other. In which time I you've already uh, mailed the book, so I should be getting it in a day or two, I would assume. It says that it's going to be delivered by I think this Friday. It's got okay. some tracking number associated okay, with it, well, so you you'll know, get a, a good choice. chance. There's some chance if I if I can get through it at all. Mm. I may very well be, because the other book, well, the other book is going slow. Like I say, I'm a slow reader. Mm. So um, everything is slow with me in that domain. So we'll see. Anyway, I'm looking uh, forward to getting it. I'm very interested in hearing your constructive feedback. <laughs> I'll try to make it constructive. Very good. Very good. Well, we'll talk in two weeks, my friend. Okay, Tom. Good night. You have a wonderful time. See you.